Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Father Joe Manich, a priest of the Diocese of Cleveland, Ohio, and his talk, Scripture 101, Bible Basics for Catholics, recorded at Come and See at Blessed Trinity Parish in Akron in January 2013. With part one of his presentation, Scripture 101, Bible Basics for Catholics, here is Father Joe Manich. Tonight we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Scripture 101, basically Bible Basics for Catholics. Many of you, if, um, if you are older than I am, which is most people, and if you're older than I am, there was a period of time when Catholics really didn't do much with the Bible. Partly because it was, don't touch it, that's for the Protestants. We'll tell you what to believe, and don't touch it. And that began changing in 1943, uh, but then really, especially after the Second Vatican Council, began the idea, you know, get into the Bible. Get into, and especially the document Dei Verbum in the Second Vatican Council was, read about it. Get in there, see what it's about. And then since the Second Vatican Council in the late 60s, or mid-60s, excuse me, and on, we've really continued to dive into Scripture and into understanding what Scripture is all about. But I think in order for us to set the groundwork for Scripture, we have to kind of take a step back for a second and talk about really what is a concept called revelation. And revelation, at its very basic, is not the book of Revelation. So I'm not talking about the specific book right here that's the last book in the Bible. I'm talking about the idea of God revealing basically God's self to humanity or God revealing himself, depending on how you want to put it, but God's communication of God'sness, if you will, to humanity. And I think it's important, and if you just take a moment and look at your shoes, when we think about Revelation, I think it's important to realize we would not go out into the world without both shoes on because we would look foolish. We'd also wobble. And that idea of revelation, not uh, of having both shoes on, is important because when we think about revelation, we have to think about really two main things, scripture and tradition. So that is, for us, the understanding of God revealing God's self is through scripture and tradition, left and a right shoe. Now, pick or choose which shoe is which. It doesn't really matter. But the idea is you need both. So... When we talk about revelation, we talk about God revealing to humanity self-disclosure. Who is God? What does that relationship mean? And so our two biggest ways that we see revelation is through scripture and tradition. But over the course of years, through different people, different events, different stories. And so one side, of script, one side of Revelation is tradition. So I want to touch on that first. Then we will go into the Scripture side, because obviously this is all about Scripture. But I would feel kind of amiss if I didn't talk a little bit about Revelation as a whole first. Because, again, of how important it is to understand both of those concepts. And that's one of the things that really does make us different than most Protestant denominations, is our reliance upon Scripture and tradition. We can thank Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, for the idea of only relying upon scripture. Because during the Protestant Reformation, the 1500s, uh, beginning in 1517, his reliance was only scripture. If you can't find it in scripture, forget about the rest. If 
But for us, we've always said since the beginning. And it's interesting because, as I'll talk a little bit later on, Scripture itself comes from tradition. Scripture itself didn't just fall out of the sky as it is. It was conditioned in and amongst people and stories, oral tradition. I mean, it itself was conditioned by people. Inspired, but we'll talk about that. So when we talk about where does the idea of tradition begin, tradition for us as Catholics, really for everybody as Christians, begins in who? Jesus. And in the person, the life, the ministry, the action, Jesus. And so when we talk about tradition, we talk about what did Jesus do? What did he say? How did he act? How did he live? How did he love? How did he serve? How did he preach? How did he teach? It was then tradition, looking upon Jesus, his actions, his sayings, his person, that began being shared amongst the early Christian community. Amongst the early Christian community, then you began sharing, this is who he was, and what did it mean for them? Because what's the earliest form of the apostolic preaching, the apostles, was this is Jesus, this is what he did, this is how he changed my life. And I invite you to think about that in the same way as how the early church began spreading who Jesus was. Now, it's important for us to realize, too, I think there are, you can talk about capital T traditions and lowercase t traditions. Big T's, little T's. Big T tradition would be things like our scripture, the creeds that we use in church, the liturgy that we pray together, the doctrine, the things that the church as a whole believes, teaches, preaches. There are then, of course, small traditions, small T's, such as how do we personally pray? What do we like about music? What do we like about art? Our family traditions at Christmas, those are all small traditions, but those are important nonetheless. And so, as I mentioned, we have different sources of tradition, one of which is Scripture itself. And even, interestingly enough, as I said, traditions even though tradition and scripture are two different parts of Revelation, the tradition side is influenced by scripture. Because what happened with scripture? It developed over time. I think that's an important thing for us to remember, that it's not something that fell out of the sky. It just didn't show up in the Bible like, here it is, in 14 different languages, away you go. No, it developed over time. It's also, and I think I remember this as a kid, This idea that there is this divine dove writing pen that just kind of started writing scripture. And you wrote around, and this is how you wrote it. Well, no, it's not that. There wasn't this dove moving a pen, but it was some sort of act of inspiration. And you know what inspiration means. It's it's some sort of movement of the heart, inquiring, or not inquiring, excuse me, inclining a human to share what God wanted to be revealed in human talent, human words, human expression, human emotion, human writing. It is then really scripture as a whole becomes an expression and an experience of a faith community inspired by God to be written down. So it happens in, for example, we were just laughing about this today. It'd be like if St. Paul wrote a letter to the Filipinos, which he didn't, 
But sometimes people say, a reading from the letter of Paul to the Filipinos. Well, if he did, he'd be writing a letter conditioned to the people of the Philippines. Much like if we here in Akron wanted to write a letter from the Akronites. Well, it's going to have an Akronist flavor to it. We're going to talk about devil strips, which in Cleveland they have no idea what you're talking about. They have no idea what an expressway is either in Cleveland. Because it's always the highway, or 77. Every highway up in Cleveland is 77. It's not. It's either 77 or the Interbelt, even though they're not only that. And so what we get in tradition, what we got in scripture, even as it's forming in tradition, is because it's coming out of a lived believing community. Another source of tradition is our creeds. One of the earliest creeds we have is the Apostles' Creed. That comes probably as early as 110 A.D., as far as the earliest form. And that's why we use it for the baptismal promises at Easter, because that was the creed of the early church. It was then later developed into the Nicene Creed, which is why, of course, because why is the Nicene Creed longer? Period of development. But its roots are in the Apostles' Creed. The liturgy. The liturgy itself, many of you remember the Trinitine Rite before the Second Vatican Council. The liturgy has changed in its expression, even most recently with the New Roman Missal. But look what isn't changed. We still have the Eucharist. We still have the offering of gifts of bread and wine, the praying with the power of the Spirit, the breaking and the giving. Those core beliefs, those core actions are still there, even though the expression changes around it. That's a product of development. Some might argue redevelopment or regression, but it depends on how you look at it. But it's a product you can see development in there with the core staying the same. And you see that the belief stays true. The whole idea, too, of doctrine, that's another source of our tradition. What does the church believe? And I think that's the nice, the neat, the neat thing about this Come and See program. When you think about what you talk about here, if you look at the schedule, a lot of these things are church teachings, are things that people have questions about, wondering about, things that over the time and over the years have changed. Some have stayed the same. Some are a product development. A lot are part of dialogue, trying to understand, well, what is it that we believe? Why do we believe these things? But in reality, what we all try to do is try to stay true to the things that are most important. I mean, we've always believed that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was the Savior. I mean, those are some of those things that, you know, if you're going to argue that, then I'm sorry, you're not, you're not Catholic and you're also not Christian at this point. If you say, well, Jesus really wasn't the Son of God. Wrong camp. Um, <laughs> you, really, you, can't, you can't really get out of that at this point of the game. Now, you can argue other things and discuss other things. And I think that's one of the things I love about our church is, you know, we've got... We have a lot of latitude to disagree, a lot of latitude to discuss, and you're still in the game. You're still in the ark. You're still there to talk. As opposed to some other that say, well, guess what? Now you're going to found the third church of the second reform down the street because you've just disagreed with this belief. So that, in theory, the doctrine, scripture, liturgy, creeds are our tradition side. So now what I want to do is I want to talk only about the scripture side, because that's what I'm here to talk about. But, so now we're moving to the other side of Revelation. But remember, this is still all Revelation. This is still all somehow connected to, ultimately, who? The person of Jesus. And how do we articulate who Jesus is for us, 
and what difference does he make for us as a community? Now, I brought handouts because I like handouts. And this is kind of what I just said verbally as far as scripture and tradition. You see, and I put God in the middle. We all know Jesus is God, but God really is the center of revelation, the person of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, all self-included in the word God. But so you see right there, God's revelation, scripture, tradition, both sides are centered on who? God. And so when we talk about revelation, we talk centering on God. Now, we'll talk about scripture, which is the most common form of revelation. And that's why I really, I said, I really want to make a point to talk about revelation in general first, because oftentimes when we people think about revelation, the first thing we go to is, well, it's scripture. That's what you're talking about. Well, no, there's a little other component to it for us. So when we talk about scripture, here's a couple of basic points I'd like us to keep in mind. First, it's a timeless story for all ages. Even though it's old, it's certainly older than any of us. I think if you've read scripture, which I'm assuming one of us, have, we have at least one time in our life or not, there's a point about it that's timeless, that seems to have a connection to us even in 2013 of something that was written a long time ago. For example, I love the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is the modern day phrase of don't eat yellow snow. <laughs> because the people that wrote Proverbs were trying to basically make sense of life situations. And they're saying, don't play with a foolish person, you're going to get burned. You know what? That's still as timeless today as it was probably back in the 500 BC when they wrote that. Timeless. Secondly, it's really affected what's the best-selling book in the world? The Bible. So it's proof that it has affected much of the course of the world's history over the course of our history. It's also not only a story for all ages that's timeless, it's not also something that has affected the course of human history, it's also very much a spiritual history of a spiritual people, be it Jewish people, be it Christian people, in some circles, our Islamic friends, there are some ties into the Koran from our scriptures. Jesus appears in the Koran. Mary appears in the Koran. There are some of those overlaps. Um, but it's also, and I use the word appropriately, spiritual history of a spiritual people. It's not historical history. That'll be an important thing to keep in mind. You will not find it in the reference section as it is some sort of encyclopedia because it's not meant to be a social studies book. It's not meant to be a primer on how the world came to be from a scientific standpoint, but it's still accurate. And that's one of the things that is very interesting to talk about because there are some times, and I don't want to pick on the Protestants, but there are some times when you get into things with them that they will go so far about, take it, take it, take it. This is what it means. This is what it means. Get to John 6 when it talks about I'm the bread of life. And they say, uh, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean eat his body, drink his blood. That's, no, that's not what he means there. And we had it this summer because I actually remember preaching on it. Was because we had Mark last year. And so there's a period in the middle. We go into six weeks of I'm the bread of life. And I remember even saying it and having my, the assembly laugh because they know it. They know it when you get to talk about that sometimes with their Protestant friends. They're like, no, 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 we, we don't believe this part. But you spend the whole rest of the year believing everything, but now we get to this and you're like, you don't want to talk about it. Why? Well, nobody ever gives you a straight answer. But 
So it is then, the fourth point is always remember it's true, but not always accurate. Spiritual history that is true, but not always accurate, affected the course of the world, and really has made a difference in the lives of Christians and Jewish people. And so when we talk about scripture then, we commonly know it as the Bible. That's, that's, that's a given. When you say scripture, it equals Bible. For us, it's a collection of 73 different books. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, too. It seems straightforward, but when you have 73 different books, what do you have? You have different perspectives, different writings, different styles, different ways of conveying some central truths. 46 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. What does that say? Two-thirds of the Bible is the Old Testament, roughly speaking. That's important because at one time in our history, there was a movement in the church to say we didn't need the Old Testament. That was condemned. It was condemned as a heresy saying, no, we need the whole Bible. You can't just say, eh, lob it off, it doesn't matter anymore. And some of that's grounded in what does Jesus say? I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For example, in the Old Testament, how many commandments are there? Ten. In the New Testament, how many commandments are there? Two. Right. Right. There you go. There are. So the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament are the Ten Commandments. But those become fulfilled in Christ's, not commandments, but his law of love. Does that undo the Ten Commandments? No. But it really fulfills it. Because it takes, really, the Ten Commandments are very negative sounding. Thou shall not. And the positive becomes, love, your na- love God above all things. Love your neighbor as yourself, which takes the 10 and moves them into a positive act of loving as opposed to a positive act of don't do this or negative act of don't do that as I fall this way. So um, you see that if you were to just lob it off, well, what happens? Well, now all of a sudden you've really abolished the Ten Commandments. And that's not what Jesus came to do. He came to fulfill it. So each of those books then has its own writing style, its own perspective, its own centuries of history, and quite honestly, its own languages. When I was here in Stowe, I, was, uh, I spent about two and a half years as a police chaplain. One of the funniest things to watch is an accident report being written. Because as many people saw it is how many accidents you had. <laughs> I mean, that's when it comes down to it. it. It's one objective event, but everybody looks at it from their own angle. And that's only human nature. Same thing we'll see a little bit later on. I'm going to talk about the Gospels. Same thing, same event, but different viewpoints on that same event because of one's conditioning, one's own experience. And so the Bible, too, then, we have to remember, again, even though we see it in its form today, in a nice little book, perhaps leather-bound, perhaps a big fireside version, it's a product of years of development because probably the earliest part of the Bible, Genesis, might have been written in its earliest stages on scraps of tin or whatever they had back then as early as 1800 BC. And then you might be finishing things like the book of Revelation, some of the letters of John, as recent as 110 AD. It's a big time of span to be pulling things together and redacting and putting stuff together and adding stories and taking stories apart and putting them together. The question then comes, and this is an interesting one because 
we also hear, especially with New Testament, well, I hear there's some books that aren't in the New Testament. Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Thomas. Where do those come from? Well, I'm going to answer that. So first, you have to think about how do they end up here in the Bible? They ended up in the Bible because it was a deliberate attempt to put things together. The, New, the Old Testament really comes from our Jewish roots. We didn't have to do much with the, New, the Old Testament. Um, the only thing that is different about that is we as Catholics say there's 46 books in the Old Testament. The Protestants say there's 39. The difference happens to be the fact that um, the Protestants usually use uh, the Jewish canon of 39, where we used a Greek translation based on 46. A lot of it has to do with the way some of the books are subdivided. More often than not, the Protestant books, the Bibles, actually do have these extra books in them now, but separated. So some of the books that they don't have would be things like Wisdom, Esther, Baruch. Um, actually, it's called J.T. McWeb. So it's uh, Judith Tobit, Esther, Baruch, uh, the Syriac books, Wisdom, portion of that. Because they were in a different language. Because originally the Bible you know, was in either Hebrew or, uh, was in Hebrew or Aramaic. Well, there's sections of the Old Testament that end up being in Greek. And the, the Jewish canon said, well, that's really new because we didn't write in Greek. So we're not going to kind of include that. But for us, we always use them. And it wasn't up until Martin Luther's time when he said, now where did these come from? And we said, well, we don't really want to take them out because we've always used them. So we're going to leave them there. Also, um, and so that's kind of how that, the, the, the division is in there. That's why, just as a little side note, uh, Maccabees is one of those that is not in the Protestant canon. Canon basically means measuring stick. That's why the Protestants as a whole have problems with purgatory. Because the only scriptural reference we, ha reference we have for purgatory is in Maccabees. Because it talks about praying for the souls of those who are undergoing purification before going to heaven, basically speaking. And since we can only find it in Maccabees, they say, but it's in your book. It's not in ours. So there, and it has to do with the Maccabean soldiers and the revolution that they had during that period of time. Now, let's flip to the New Testament. How do the New Testament books become the way they are? There's 27 of them. There's three criteria that things ended up being in there. Number one, did they seem to have roots in the, ap the apostles? Did they seem to be apostolic? Written by an apostle or written by somebody who were journeyed with an apostle? Somebody had firsthand knowledge of the person of Jesus. Number two, how were they viewed in the early church? Were they viewed as part of the church's tradition already? Now remember, this predates the institutional church. This is the church of the early house churches, the early gatherings. But they were already using these texts as they began to move from oral tradition into some sort of written material, into their conversations, into their praying gatherings. And then also, how did the early church use them? Not only how do they view them, but do they actually use these books? So, for example, I talk about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary. Some of these other books come actually like, we believe that most of the New Testament was done by about 110 AD. Written as early, Gospel of Mark was probably written as early as 65. The letters of St. Paul, some of those early Thessalonians were probably written as early as like 50, 52. But we believe most of the books in the Old Testament, New Testament, excuse me, were done by around 110. 
Some of these other books didn't have not been dated now that scholars have looked at them till 200, 250, 300 AD. Well, now there's a span of 100 years between when these books showed up and when the early community stopped using these books. So it's not like they might be purported to be from Mary or Thomas, but they're later in the tradition. Or they have things in there that is awkward, for example. Um, I can't remember if it's Thomas or Peter. Jesus got mad at his friends and turned them to stone while he was playing with them as a kid. Does that have happened anywhere else in the Bible? Or Jesus, you know how kids make like mud pies and birds out of mud? Jesus made mud pies and birds and gave them breath and they flew away. Well, that's really cute. And that's like, oh yeah, that's Jesus. There he goes. But that doesn't, nowhere else do we hear anything that Jesus did between the age of 12 and 33. It was kind of a missing time in his life because he was doing, we don't know what he really was doing. So you kind of look at, so some of those reasons why we call those the hidden books or the apocryphal books is because the early church wasn't really using them. Or now in historical studies, they've looked back and say, this writing style isn't even from that era. This is later looking back, trying to write back into the era. So it's more like, well, let's try to make up these stories just to kind of fill in the gap as opposed to truly what happened. So that kind of talks about how these ended up in the scriptures, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament. So now what I'd like to do is really talk about three key points that we have uh, for, as Catholics in Scripture. We believe that Scripture is inspired, free from error, and needs to be interpreted. Scripture is inspired because we believe it's God's word spoken through the writer to us. Again, not that the dove wrote this heavenly pen... But God told the writer, revealed to the person's own ability in their situation, in their life, in their world, in their worldview, what needed to be said. And through their gifts, the scripture was written through their viewpoint. It also means that we believe that, script, that revelation was completed in Christ. So I'm here to tell you this. There is nothing needed for salvation that has not been said in the person of Jesus. Anything that arrives on the scene saying you have to believe this is not in accordance with our belief because Jesus was the fullness of revelation. To see Jesus is to see God. So to look at Jesus is to see the fullness of revelation and the fullness of time down here on earth. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For a copy of this program on Compact Disc, call 330-966-2903 or send an email to orders at livingbreadradio.com and reference the program broadcast date. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.